Father, we thank you for this time together. Uh, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of your people um, that you have called to yourself a community and our local body here at Sylvania is a blessing to us um, that you have blessed us with the gospel, that you've blessed us with a calling and, and uh, giftings by your spirit to be encouraging to one another, to um, spur one another on to grow in Christ. And we pray that that happens some more this morning as we study your word, um, but also as we take a look toward what is the purpose of the church? What is, the, what is our mission here? And the, 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 um, the distractions that often come uh, that take us away from that mission. And so we pray that your spirit will uh, help us to think this morning, give us clear minds, and give us hearts that are uh, desiring and yearning to be obedient, yielding to your Holy Spirit to make much of Jesus in the world. We thank you for these in His name. Amen. All right, we're in Acts 13, uh, starting in verse 4. Last time we were in Acts, we saw that God, through the person of the Holy Spirit, showed Himself, yes, nice, he did show himself uh, through the person of the Holy Spirit to be ascending God. He is the one who orchestrated that uh, Paul and uh, or Saul and Barnabas were to be set apart for the work that he was calling them. Didn't tell him what the work was, but he moved the church to fast and pray to send out Saul and Barnabas to a mission. And we know from uh, having read Acts before, that the mission was to the Gentiles. Antioch was already pretty heavily involved in missions to the Gentiles, but they're kind of the first local body that actually actively is sending out to, uh, to evangelize the Gentile community outside their borders. So the work that Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas here, uh, were beginning starts in Cyprus. And Cyprus was about 60 miles away from Antioch. Barnabas was from Cyprus, uh, kind of a natural place for them to go. A uh, little background on Cyprus before we read the passage. Cyprus was, of course, an island. It was colonized by humans way back. <laughs> and it was colonized by humans, uh, namely the Egyptians, took it over. And then it was uh, the, uh, let me see how the order went here. The Egyptians, the Greeks, the Assyrians, the Persians, and the Egyptian Ptolemies. Remember when Alexander the Great conquered, he died young and he had four generals. And one of those generals, Ptolemy, started his own empire kind of thing. And so all that to say, Cyprus is a very Gentile place. Lots of different cultures represented there. Lots of different people represented there. It, for a small island, it was kind of a, 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 a very, um, a very uh, diverse place. Uh, there's a significant Gentile population. So it was given to the Senate when Rome took it over in about the first century BC. It was given to the Senate by Augustus, which was kind of a thing. So they had two different types of provinces. They had the imperial province, which was done by the emperor, and there was a governor and those kinds of things. Executive branch took it over. Well, they also had land and provinces owned by the Senate, and they were governed by guys known as proconsuls. So there's two different kind of hierarchies of the territories. And the reason I bring that out is Luke makes a very concerted effort 
to accurately record what's going on there. This is a good history. And you see him using the Roman terminology to delineate what's actually going on in that time in, in history. And so, I, again, I like bringing that out because it shows the credibility and the truthfulness. We can trust the Bible. We can trust what Luke has written here as history. So let's look at, uh, let's look at uh, uh, verse 4 and read through verse 12. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He, he was with the proconsul, the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil! You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed... When he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Very interesting story. Does this sound like anything else we've read in Acts before? Any kind of similar situation? Saul was struck blind. Very, very good point. We'll touch on that in a little bit. What else? Who else dealt with a magician? Do you remember? I remember there, being another magician. there was another magician that was dealt with by, by Peter, Simon the magician, Simon Magnus. Um, was very similar situation. Uh, let's see here. What do they first do when they arrive at the Salamis port in Cyprus? What do they first do? Let's just kind of walk through it real quick. They go to the synagogues. Now, why would they do that? To proclaim the word of God. To proclaim the word of God. Yes. Why would they go to synagogues? So I thought this was a Gentile mission. Jews. Nothing wrong with telling the Jews as well. Nothing wrong with telling the Jews as well. In fact, this is a pattern you see throughout the rest of Acts. When they go to these Gentile cities, they'll go to the synagogues first. Now, we said earlier that Cyprus had a, a, a vast Gentile population. There's also a pretty significant Jewish population, so much so that we see synagogues, plural, not just synagogue. So they're going to all of these synagogues, and they're proclaiming Christ. We'll see some more of that later in chapter uh, 13, um, next, next week, Lord willing, and <laughs> if the crick don't rise. Uh, another point, though, for them going to these synagogues is that there are within the synagogues what are known as God-fearers, right? They're Gentiles who, uh, who, who are 
believing, who are learning, being converted to Judaism. And so what a natural place to go to that audience as well, to then from the God-fears launch out into the greater world of the Gentiles. A lot of scholars think that that was kind of Paul's plan, that you go to the synagogues, you go to the Jews first, and the God-fears, and you even see Paul address them that way in the next section in chapter 13, Jews and God-fears. So you'll, as a, as a launching pad to the rest of the city for the gospel, he's got a built-in Gentile audience who would, who would be naturally receptive to the gospel. Why would they be receptive to the gospel? Why do you think? Because they're already looking for something else. They're already looking for something else. They're already looking toward the God of the Bible. But what's the difficulty with Judaism? You've got to be a Jew. What's involved in being a Jew? Uh, circumcision. There's circumcision, a lot of pain. Uh, following the law. Ceremonial, law. Ceremonial laws there. What's the beauty of the gospel to the Jew and the Gentile? You don't have to do all that stuff to be righteous before God. Christ has fulfilled all righteousness for us. And so this gives an opportunity for a Gentile to be truly Jewish. Right? I mean, isn't that the way Paul talks about it later in Romans? So that's a natural place for him to go. Um, who else? Who else do we learn is there? Who's with them? The first time we hear him. John. John. John who? The Apostle? Nope. John Mark. John Mark. Why? Why would John Mark be with them? What do you think? What does it say he's doing? Assisting. Assisting. So when, when Luke uses that word for assisting, what do you think it means? The, the, Greek, the Greek for assisting. Do you, what do you think he's talking about there? Deacon. I think he means help them. He means to assist them. Some, some of that, though, does involve this understanding that he has, and we see it later in the gospel that he helped to write, that he has, some, some scholars uh, believe, kind of a special knowledge, a, a more intimate knowledge of the passion narrative of Jesus. And so they'd be consulting him for the historicity of that narrative that some, some scholars think that he was a, a resource there. At the very least, He's there to help them, assist them at whatever they need to do, right? Um, but there's some loading in that word and in places that lead scholars to think he, was, he had a specific role, possibly helping with baptisms and those kinds of things. Um, all right. Luke tells us that they traveled the width of the island, that's about 90 miles, to the west to Paphos. And we're not told if they evangelized the villages along the way, we, but we assume that they are doing that. The focus of the passage is where we get to with the proconsul, that the conversion of the proconsul is what the whole passage is about. And who is this guy? Sergius Paulus. We have no archaeological evidence that verifies that this guy was the proconsul yet uh, uh, on Cyprus. I mean, new things are found all the time. Maybe we will one day, but to date, we don't. But we have several inscriptions that are thought to point in that direction that verify what Luke is saying is true. The other thing we do know, though, is that the Pauli family 
for several centuries had been a very influential family in the empire and had produced several officials uh, throughout the Roman Empire. And so it gives, again, credibility to what Luke is saying here as to who was the proconsul at the time. So this guy comes from a very prominent family, very powerful position, being the ruler of an entire island. It's kind of cool. Um, why in the world would he call Saul and Barnabas before him? These guys are nobodies. Why would, why would he give them an audience at all? What's going on here? He's very curious. Spirit working in him? Yeah, I think so. He's curious, but where does the curiosity come from? Herod was curious. Right? These people oppose him. They preach something that's directly opposite to what he thinks. It's different than what he's maybe heard before. Uh, certainly from the, the, the uh, Jewish false prophet that's there beside him. These guys are nobodies in the Roman world. They, Saul and Barnabas have no human authority at all. There's nothing to gain from them. They're, they're, they have no political standing. They're unknowns. And yet, we've seen earlier in the chapter, they're called by God. Um, God is the instigator of this meeting. Like Cornelius, God is the instigator of this meeting. What does that tell you about God? What does that tell you? He goes to great lengths. He goes to great lengths. Why? What's the point here? Says that none should perish. That none should perish, but all come to repentance. Yes? He's on mission. Right? And he uses a couple of nobodies from Antioch to get him in front of the leader of this island. He makes the movements there. They're called by God, sent by God. Here, God, against all odds, gets them a hearing with the governor of the whole island on their first mission. This is their first thing out the gate, and they're in front of the governor. All right, so you have kind of a Cornelius repeat here, a pagan who wants to hear the word of God. And God gets it done. Who is this Bar Jesus character? Who is this Bar Jesus character? The term magician, if you remember when we talked about Simon, uh, has a derogatory feel to it. Magi in Luke is, you know, it's not necessarily derogatory. The Magi coming from the East, that's not derogatory. But most of the time it's used in a derogatory way as a huckster, a trickster kind of idea. And so that's the way Luke is using it here. Um, comes to mind, like employed by uh, the He's employed by the proconsul to do, what, what, he, what would he be doing? Entertainment. In entertainment, he's, he's mystical. Uh, he has this I, 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 acclaimed power many times of being able to to tell the future, to perform these magical feats or whatever. Um, now, Luke tells us that the proconsul was a man of intelligence. So how could he fall for this guy's tricks? What's going on there? Did, any idea? I mean, this guy's supposed to be well-learned, he comes from a great family, and he's, he's sitting there with, you know, Wormwood uh, next to him, uh, telling him all this stuff. Why would he listen to this guy? Blindness knows no bounds. 
Okay, so there's a blind, there's a pagan thing going on there. Ro- the Romans were known for having great um, consideration for deference to the the arts of divination. They loved that stuff. They had their own oracles that they would that they would uh, hire to tell them the future. They put a lot of stock in it. And these tricksters, these magician guys, were usually very smooth, pretty knowledgeable. They kind of practiced a, a sort of pseudoscience. Um, and so the fact that he was Jewish probably also lent to his credibility because they viewed the Jews as having this deep religious knowledge. And so this guy really knows his stuff. He's able to tell me the future. And he has all this kind of cultural uh, knowledge, uh, heretical, not heretical, well, heretical, but but. Her- Knowledge from heritage, I guess, is the word I'm trying to get to. Um, so Josephus mentions a number of Jewish sorcerers who had great success among the Gentiles. What's the problem with that as Jew practicing, sor- practicing sorcery? What's the problem with that? Is that against the law? Yeah, you think? <laughs> uh, those of us who went through Leviticus, you remember Leviticus 19? What do you do with those guys? Do we pull them out of the they burn them, yes. Uh, no, they stone them, actually. It's a little, little different. <laughs> this doesn't fly in Judea, but it'll fly with the Romans. And so you've got several of these Jewish sorcerers that Josephus talks about made great money doing this. Great money doing it. Um, you know, it's just a trade. But these guys betrayed their own heritage. So Bar-Jesus probably offered his services to Paulus uh, to divine future events for him. He had, he had a good racket going on here. What's the problem? Why is he opposing Saul and Barnabas? That's cool. They're a threat. If what they're saying is true, my influence over the pro my paycheck from the proconsul gets curtailed. Right? You were gonna say something. Is Bar Jesus, does that mean the opposite of Jesus? Bar uh it means son of son of son of so it's kind of a play on words. Son of the Savior is what is what his name means. Uh, how does Luke describe the efforts of Bar Jesus? He he points to two things that he's doing specifically. He describes them two ways. What does he say? Opposed them. Right? And seeking to turn the prone council away from the faith. So it's two things. He's opposing, actively opposing these gospel missionaries, these Christian missionaries. And he's seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Those are the two things he's doing. He's putting obstacles in front of Saul and Barnabas. And he's seeking to influence, to turn away from, don't listen, he's divert his attention to something else. His first goal is to throw off Paul and Barnabas from their mission through obstacles, difficulties, uh, to hinder their proclamation of the gospel by whatever means. Maybe he was a, I don't know, an Alinsky devotee. I don't know how that works. But his second goal was to divert the proconsul's attention from the proclamation of the gospel. He's going to drown out what he could, drown out what he could, and then divert from what he couldn't. How'd that work for him? How'd that go? Who's he opposing? Exactly. Who's he opposing? He's opposing God, right? How do we know that, by the way? What does Luke tell us about Paul? He was filled with the Holy Spirit. So he's actively opposing the Holy Spirit working through Paul, right? 
Um, Bar Jesus is opposing God himself. It is God who has orchestrated this meeting. And so, being filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul is culturally sensitive to the moment he's in, right? He, he, he's, he's being careful not to offend anybody with his words because he wants to be all things to all men. That's what that means. How does Paul address this? I love the way Luke describes this. What is he? He calls it the way he sees it. I mean, if you're going to win friends and influence people, I don't know that starting out with, um, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, uh, you, you full of all, all deceit and villain. Notice the all the absolute language. I mean, how do you do that in a pluralistic society? I mean, all this, all, 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 all. This is, a, this is, a, this is pretty kind of, of, of Paul to do. Uh, pretty, pretty PC. He, um, he's not worried about whether or not he's perceived as loving. He's not worried about whether or not he's perceived as being a meanie here. He goes right at the guy. He does the same thing Peter did, remember? And Jesus. And Jesus. Um, Peter uh, turned on Simon pretty hard. And Paul turns on this guy, Bar Jesus, pretty hard with a vengeance. And incidentally, I, I could not help but notice the irony here. Uh, New Testament Saul takes down the medium. As opposed to Old Testament Saul, who saw it after the... Anyway, I just thought that was interesting. Just to kind of bring that all around. Uh, sometimes, punishment in Acts comes very swiftly. Remember uh, Ananias and Sapphira and, and with Herod, whenever he set himself up as, uh, with his little God-glory complex there. And here, Paul predicts it. Elemis, which means magician, is, they're not playing off of the Bar-Jesus name. Elemis means magician, it's derivative. Um, he's struck blind as a symbol of his own spiritual blindness. And it's pretty dramatic. How does it describe what happens here? Mist and darkness. darkness. Now, obviously, that's not just in theory. Somebody saw that, right? Because that's how he describes it. This mist and darkness falls on the guy such that what? This prideful man with lots of influence over the proconsul is doing what? He's got to be led around by the hand. That's pretty intense, actually. Think of the dramatic scene there in front of the proconsul. This guy uh, is suddenly blind. God's supremacy is shown, and the point is made to the proconsul. However, another point is being pressed here, and I think it's one that we, we, should, um, we should take note. Christianity has nothing to do with magic and superstition. Uh, the word... And the Spirit overcome all of this. And those who try to combine hucksterism with Christianity should be called out for what they are. Sons and daughters of the devil, enemies of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. I will point out to you that Saul's statement, Paul's statement to, uh, to Bar-Jesus here is, is a little ironic. Son of the Savior, Paul calls him son of the devil, right? 
enemy of all righteousness. Well, righteousness is the attribute primarily attributed to God in the Old Testament. Again and again, it's one of those primary attributes of God that are, that are highlighted in the Old Testament and New. And he calls him the enemy of all righteousness, which in effect is saying you're an enemy of God. This villainy and deceit language, uh, the, the Greek there has the idea of bait, luring for, into a trap kind of thing. I mean, so all of this is very direct, very dramatic, very um, non-PC. Um, so what's the, what's the effect of the judgment on the proconsul? How does he respond to this? I don't want to be blind. He believes. He believes. Why? What's he astonished by? This is the thing that amazes me. What, he's astonished by the teaching. I mean, you've just seen this amazing thing, this guy being blind. I'm sure that had some effect on him, obviously. I mean, how could it not? But he's astonished by the teaching. Well, this is a Roman, right? Yes. Roman mythology is bloody. You screw up, the gods will either kill you or turn you into an animal and then kill you. Right. So, God striking the guy blind is kind of merciful, to be honest, in his opinion. Yeah, and, and that it's temporary. I mean, yeah. Paul says you're going to be struck for a season. So, that's a merciful thing, even though it's pretty dramatic. But at the same time, he is astonished by the teaching. What do you think? Just We don't know exactly what he's astonished by, but can you imagine what it would be? What God dies for his people. Because the mythology is one of power, right? Power, blood. Power through forceful oppression. And yet here we have the Son of God laying down his life for the redemption of his people. I would think that would be fairly astonishing. And then to add that the power that God has proven in front of him. Is also it's not like he couldn't conquer through might, right? And that's displayed here with this magician. But how has he, cho he chosen to do it? For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Even, yeah. Have you been striking down blindness with an act of kindness and mercy? Because if the end goal is for us to know God and to experience salvation and sanctification, then the kindest thing he can do is to bring us to that place of humility, mm -hmm. whatever that takes. And so for him, he needed that, like God loves and disciplines mm -hmm. his children. Right. And discipline is an act of love. And so even striking him blind was was him being kind and, and kind of calling him out, bringing him out, that slapping him on the hand, right. getting his attention. And so that's something to remember for ourselves. Like whenever we experience, experience things where we're like, we think that God's being cruel to us, Cruelty is not in God's nature at all, mm -hmm. in any sense. And so he's not being cruel. If he's disciplining us, it's because he loves us. And there's nothing unnecessary that God yeah. does. With yeah, he's he very, what, what it takes to get there. He's very economic with his moves. Uh, and what he does is, is necessary for, for his glory and, and our good. So um, there's really no reason to believe that the proconsul's conversion here uh, was anything but real. I mean, he, he, he believes in the teaching. He's astonished by the teaching. And, um, and that's the point of the whole narrative, is this guy's conversion. Historians believe that they have evidence uh, that members of his family were known Christians for the next two generations after this event. So I think it's kind of cool. Uh, did you notice what happened in verse 9? Well, there's that. I wonder what that look was. Saul, who is also called Paul. Saul, who is also called Paul. This is the first time 
that we really see this, this transition from the Aramaic name, Jewish name, Saul, to the Greek name, Paul. And that's done for a reason. From this point forward, he's known as Paul. In fact, you see this transition in this chapter even from Barnabas and Saul to Paul and Barnabas. Uh, later on in the chapter, you'll see Paul and his companions. So Paul takes more of a leadership role in the mission to the Gentiles. And you see Luke transitioning that, that shift here. All right. Very dramatic. Very amazing. Yay for the proconsul. Glad he was saved. One phrase in particular sticks out to me on this. And I think it's instructive and encouraging for us. Paul accuses this magician of making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. What does that mean? Making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. What is he talking about? Is that in Psalms? Proverbs? Well, it says it can't be done. Who can make crooked what God has made true? That's true. That's true. Micah talks about making crooked what should be straight in, in terms of, of, of uh, you know, thwarting God's law. Um, Paul is using some pretty, um, pretty amazing terminology here. It kind of clears it up for us if we, if we discover that the, um, the word, the Greek word there for turn away, turn away the proconsul from the faith is the same word. Uh, that, that's translated here, make crooked. So there's a turning away, trying to obstruct is making crooked. And the straight paths then would also be linked to the faith that he's being turned away from. So if we were looking at the straight paths of the Lord, it, it would be the faith. God has made a straight path to Christ. And obstructions against that are making those paths crooked. That's the idea that, that, that Paul is, is working through here. The, the way you make crooked the straight paths of the Lord is to get in the way of people coming to faith. I think that's instructive for us. Number one, what does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about God? He desires for us to be saved. He desires for us to be saved so much so that what? Is he hiding around the corner with some new mystical revelation for us if we just paid enough money to get to it? If we had followed certain dietary regimens, we would be in a state of perfect communion with the one and we could find out this new... No. His paths are straight. They're straight. They're not hidden. They're, they're clear to him. He's made them straight. That shows us um, that when he has a means, when he means to save the proconsul and others, he sends some nobodies from Antioch to proclaim the gospel. There's no trickery. There's no secret truth. It's a straight path. Believe, trust, depend exclusively on Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. It's a straight path. And the thing that shows about God is he's in the business of saving people, seeking and saving the lost. That's why he sent Christ. That's why he sends us to point people to Jesus. He's not aloof. 
He's not passive. He's not indecisive. And remarkably, he uses us to do it. So, what does it tell us? We should not be aloof. We should not be passive, and we certainly shouldn't be indecisive. There's work to be done. He sends, pursues, searches, and saves. That's our whole, all-consuming mission on this earth, because it's His mission on this earth. He's never in maintenance mode. He doesn't coast. He's active. What does that tell us about man? There are always those who try to make it crooked. And we'll see this as Philip continues in Revelation. You'll hear a little bit more about it today. We've seen already three primary modes that, that, that John points to are the, the big government oppression kind of thing, the beast, where you quash free speech, you quash the ability to proclaim the gospel. The other is the, the false prophet, the, the idea of a false narrative, a false way of salvation that's attractive, sometimes very similar, using the same language of the gospel, and yet it's, it's enough of poison in it to, to divert people and get them distracted away from the, the worldview that, that, is in, that is in Christianity. And the third one, generally in John's Revelation, is, um, we'll hear about today, because I read ahead, uh, is the Whore of Babylon. It's not Hillary Clinton. <laughs> It is a desire for comfort and security through material gain. I got my stuff, I'm good. I'll, I'll, I'll lavish with my stuff. And as long as I can protect the thing that's given me the stuff and the material gain, I'm all good. I want to maintain that. I want to be passive about everything else. Right? I want to rest in my comfort. That's making crooked the straight path. And, and we all get trapped in it sometimes. Um, they have always been with us, these three things, diverting our gaze from our greatest need, the saving and atoning work of Christ. And as we look at this, this idea of crooked path, making crooked the straight path, what is it calling on us to do? We can't coast. We can't maintain. We have to be pressing forward, moving forward, not, indivi not just individually, but as a local body. Um, as we are uh, seeking vision about what we're to do as a local body, it has to be mission-oriented because that's our whole purpose to be here is to proclaim the gospel to whomever we can get an audience in front of. If it's the governor, great. If it's the, the, the student next to us in a, in a chair, great. If it's the guy at work, great. We can't be coasting and, well, we, we, can't, be, we can't be putty to a lane. I'm not the one going to hell. We can't do that. We have to be constantly focused on the mission. Our work should reflect our desire for the mission. Our love for one another should reflect our, our desire for the mission of proclaiming Christ by a community that is transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything should be focused on making disciples, making Christ known. We can't be distracted. To do so, I worry sometimes that we 
through our indecision, through our aloofness, through our um, maintenance mode idea, make crooked. Don't ever let us, please, Lord, ever be part of making crooked that straight path. We can't be the obstacle. There are plenty of those out there, and we'll face them as we, as we proclaim the gospel. Don't let it be in us. May God move Sylvania to pray and not coast, not seek to merely maintain, but to pursue as we have been pursued. Any comments from you on this? I was thinking about what Philip said last week. Um, I think it was last week about how bad it is to teach a false gospel, basically be a false prophet. And that's what I see going on here is this bar Jesus guy was like just a derivative of Jesus. Um, and this whole passage seems to be about the teaching of the Lord, which is um, what it kind of ends with. Um, but I don't know if it's like part of the same topic, but I think I've been thinking about how people say, you know, if somebody's sinning and, you know, they're obviously doing wrong, that people will use the argument, well, just because you believe and say you believe doesn't mean anything because Satan believes. I'm like, well, Satan's intentionally trying to deceive people away from the gospel. Mm -hmm. But a person that's, you know, trying to do right but is getting off the track is not intentionally, like, trying to pull people away from Christ. It just happens to be, like... Sometimes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, sometimes that happens to justify our own sin, too. Well, yeah. We want everybody to not be so hard on us, so we try to justify by... But it's not like a, all of your being is trying to deceive people away from Christ. No, not always. Not always. That's true. Anything else? All right. Well, I just want it known, for the record, it is 10 o'clock. I'm going to pray. Close this out. God, I do pray for our church. I pray that as we are at this time of appointing um, new elders, that you give the church wisdom, that, um, that we would be uh, prayerfully zealous about the mission we've been given to this city, to this area. That we would be receptive to the move of your spirit to push us there. God, humble us to deny ourselves. Fasting is a denial of needs so that we would be more um, receptive of the commands of God. And so we pray that our attitudes and our hearts would be there as a community, individually and as a community, that we would seek your face that we would seek wisdom in how we can be a part of the mission that you are doing as an active pursuer of the souls of men. Forgive us for not being as diligent as we should be in prayer and in, um, and in uh, being a witness in this city. 
I thank you for the opportunities you've given us to share Jesus with others. I pray that you increase those opportunities, that we would not be um, nervous or scared or, or uh, worry about how men would view us, but that we, we would have the heart that you have, burdened for the lost. The most loving thing that we can do is to share Christ with another person who's bound for hell because of their sin. I pray that we're not given over to being aloof, that we're not given over to being indecisive. God forbid that we'd ever be in simple maintenance mode. Let us press forward. It's a race. Let's keep running. We can only do so by the movement of your spirit. We pray for that to happen individually and corporately. Let our church be characterized by those who love Jesus and want to make him known and actively pursue making him known throughout the city. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.